Welcome to another episode of Electable. I'm Deb Chubb. And today we are going to be talking about the new silver bullet to come to our land um, called hydrogen. And so we are very fortunate to have Kerwin Olson, Executive Director of Citizens Action Coalition here in Indiana, um, help us uh, figure this out and understand it. Uh, we've all heard about hydrogen. This is it. It's the clean burning fuel that we need to run everything from our cars to steel mills to um, electricity production. Um, so, so that's great. But the question then becomes, well, where do we get the hydrogen and how do we get it? And so, and I think many places in Indiana are, are ready to run toward this, um, you know, promised land of hydrogen. And, um, and uh, I certainly feel like I need to know a little bit more information about it. So we know hydrogen, um, generally the way to produce it is to break it out of water. Um, but again, how do we do that? And what are the um, side effects of that process? And so there are several different um, ideas going around. So we have, I'm so uh, grateful to have you here, Kerwin, to help us through this uh, complicated process. So, okay, so have I screwed anything up so far? Is it true? We take, <laughs> we take hydrogen out of water. That's how we get it generally, right? Yes. And as you said, hydrogen has become the sort of magical unicorn, the silver bullet. It sort of is the response to everything about, you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, well, everything's going to be hydrogen. But there is so much more uh, to that conversation. Uh, we are, you know, just now starting to understand and learn uh, about hydrogen because this this train is moving so fast. But there's so many things to talk about when it comes to hydrogen energy in general that often goes unsaid. Uh, first, you know, with hydrogen, it matters what you make the hydrogen with, where you where you generate the hydrogen. Are you, you know, we have all of the various colors of hydrogen, blue, green, gray, brown, hydrogen, uh, you know, that are tied to uh, how that hydrogen is produced. And so environmentalists and advocates like Citizens Action Coalition are, you know, generally supportive of the idea of green hydrogen. That is hydrogen that is made from renewable energy, uh, from wind, from hydro, from solar, no carbon emissions, no additional pollutants. Okay, um, let me just stop you there for a second. Sure, sure. So what you're saying is that you're going to use clean energy production, you know, like solar, wind, um, et cetera, to split the water and create the hydrogen, right? Correct. Okay. okay solar, okay, solar, yeah, wind, okay. hydro, correct. But there are also, you know, uh, especially in Indiana, Illinois, the momentum is on the side of what is called blue or pink hydrogen. Pink hydrogen would be hydrogen made from nuclear reactors, you know, and blue hydrogen would be hydrogen made um, from uh, fossil gas, methane, uh, with then the resulting carbon emissions from that being captured and stored underground. And then we also have brown and black hydrogen, where the hydrogen could be made from coal, could be made from petroleum coke or pet coke, as they're talking about down in West Terre Haute. So the first thing to sort of understand about hydrogen is how are we making that hydrogen? There's a big difference <laughs> between making hydrogen with solar panels and wind turbines and making hydrogen with methane, nuclear power, or pet coke or coal. Very, very different processes, very, very different environmental footprint and very, very different impact uh, on public health and the future of energy. And the other part of the hydrogen conversation that um, we, we need to figure out is what are the end uses for that hydrogen? Because when you talk to folks about energy, about transportation, everything by 2040, by 2050 is gonna be hydrogen. We're gonna be making steel, powering our steel mills, running our airplanes, running our cars, running our trucks, making electricity. So I think from CAC's perspective, it's a matter of also making a determination about what is the right end use for that hydrogen, because CAC, again, maintains our position that when it comes to electricity, we can do a lot with conservation, a lot with energy efficiency, and a whole lot with rooftop solar and renewable energy. So do we really need hydrogen to be a major player, uh, for example, when it comes to the generation of electricity? It appears to us just in some of our early work that perhaps the best use for hydrogen at this point in time might be end-use industrial processes that are very, very hard to decarbonize, 
require a lot of heat for those processes, a lot of energy. Um, and then there's also appears to be potentially a role in long haul trucking, potentially aviation, uh, tugboats, mariner vehicles, those type of things. But let's not get too carried away with the idea that we're going to have a 100% hydrogen future, you know, come 2040, come 2050, because that's a lot of hydrogen. <laughs> we don't know a lot about using hydrogen at that scale. It's odorless. You can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. The more I'm learning about, not a chemist, but the more I learn about hydrogen, there's some risks, <laughs> you know, to a, to a hydrogen economy that we need to sort of, sort of better understand. But getting back to the first point is CAC believes that there is definitely a role for hydrogen, um, but we believe that hydrogen should be, should be green made from renewable renewable energy and hydrogen production should not be an additional source of CO2 emissions that we then have to deal with, especially um, with, you know, carbon capture and sequestration, which CAC is not at all supportive of. Great. So excellent. Thank you very much. That was so helpful. So now um, I want to talk about, um, you know, well, we can talk a little bit more about, um, you know, about the problems with hydrogen <laughs> production. Um, but I want to talk to, like we said earlier, what happens when hydrogen comes to your town? Um, because we have um, apparently at the state level and at the federal level, a lot of incentive for people to get into the hydrogen production uh, business. And um, and uh, the carbon uh, capture and sequestration has been a kind of the, I don't know, kind of the big part of this conversation, at least in Indiana, um, because uh, because our legislature has been uh, really accommodating uh, people who want to kind of experiment with um, uh, hydrogen production and and specifically the carbon capture and sequestration of, of, of the uh, CO2s that, right, am I saying that right, uh, mm -hmm. uh, that, that um, are produced and um, making that production, uh, I mean, they want to say that solves the problem of the other terrible emissions, the carbon emissions that are produced when you're producing hydrogen. So, um, so we want to in Indiana, at least on a few a few of these cases, people uh, are getting all kinds of tax breaks and other grants to support uh, producing nitrogen. I'm sorry, producing hydrogen um, and using um, old-fashioned methods to do it uh, that produce carbon, and uh, but then capturing that carbon, carbon, so it's not going out into the air. That we're theoretically. Capturing it, I mean, I just, I get like all quivery when I think about the notion that we're just going to, we're just going to inject it into the ground and then it will be fine. I mean, that just, uh, to me, that just seems a little crazy. But anyway, so, um, so uh, this is what we're going to really get into here, because this is what's happening in Indiana now that's really causing some uh, controversy. And I know that CIC has been involved helping uh, people speak out um, and, uh, and really, figure this out. I mean, I saw that legislation go through and, and I was like, what is it? What? And then it was done. And I, I, what, you know, what was it? So there was legislation passed over the last couple of years that really encouraged this kind of carbon capture um, and sequestration, underground sequestration of carbon emissions. And, um, and so the, and then this last year, there was another bill that um, kind of uh, uh, moved the liability for any bad <laughs> impacts of that, um, you know, from the industrial producer of the carbon emissions that are going to be sequestered um, to people who own the property over which the carbon is injected. Um, so tell us what's happening in uh, in uh, Vigo and Vermilion counties there. it's it's The industry is uh, uh, Wabash. What is it? Oh, now I keep forgetting. Wabash it. Valley Resources. Thank yeah. You. So yeah, named Wabash Valley Resources. Okay, yeah. So tell us what's happening there. Yeah, well, just quickly, the the conversation at the Indiana General Assembly uh, down in the state capitol has not been directly about hydrogen. It's been all about carbon capture and storage, and that has largely been connected in 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 part to to the hydrogen conversation. Uh, what we have going on in uh, Vigo and Vermilion County is a project that uh, originally was announced, uh, you know, really in 2016, but really took off in 2019. It's a project by a company known as Wabash Valley Resources. 
where in 2016, they purchased the old Duke Energy, PSI Energy uh, gasification facility out there in West Terre Haute in 2016. Uh, and then in 2019, they came before the Indiana General Assembly with the idea of repurposing, at that time, the coal gasification unit to produce ammonia fertilizer uh, from that gasification unit and then capture the carbon emissions and sequester those carbon emissions underground. Um, the next year, that project morphed into becoming a hydrogen project when all of that hydrogen money became available from the federal government. And so now at this point in time, they are a, intending to produce hydrogen from the gasification facility, capture uh, the CO2 from the, from, the, from the flue gas, permanently, allegedly, permanently sequester um, the CO2 emissions underground in Vigo and Vermilion County and use that hydrogen to make ammonia fertilizer for sale within the Illinois basin around that plant. Although they have indicated they could also sell that hydrogen directly to hydrogen off-takers. They said at a meeting the other day they could use that hydrogen to make electricity, to sell that electricity onto the grid. So it's still a little sketchy as far as ultimately what their business plan is, as is usually the case with a lot of these, uh, a lot of these entrepreneurs, <laughs> you know, that go around knocking on, on doors and have great ideas. But the reality is they're getting a lot of federal support uh, right now under a hydrogen grant, but they need to move forward with uh, some additional paperwork to receive a huge federal loan guarantee because they don't have the equity uh, to do everything they need to do with the plant related to the pipeline. So, uh, bottom line is that they have a project where they are intending to make hydrogen from that gasifier, use that hydrogen to make some combination of ammonia fertilizer, electricity, or potentially sell that hydrogen to an off-taker, um, and then build a 11, 12-mile pipeline through Vigo and Vermilion County to store, uh, sequester that carbon underground, one injection site in Vigo County, one injection site in Vermilion County. And boy, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that the, the, the community there is up in arms as soon as they sort of learned about this thing and learned about what was going on. Um, you know, they're organizing, <laughs> you know, uh, they're, they're making some noise. And sadly, the General Assembly uh, really, really, really tied their hands because there was two um, bills, special legislation passed specifically uh, for this project and this project alone. Uh, and also specific only to Vigo and Vermilion counties. So Wabash Valley Resources, thanks to the Indiana General Assembly, get to play by a different set of rules than anybody else in Indiana who would want to do uh, CO2 pipelines along with uh, CO2 storage wells. So they got special legislation uh, just for them. Um, not sure where the <laughs> where the powers that be up high, who influenced all of this, but it was really, really extraordinary. Um, they kept coming back after their initial bill in 2019, kept beating them back in 2020, 21, 22. Uh, but last year, uh, somehow they got broad bipartisan support for the special legislation that effectively allows them to condemn private property only in Vigo and Vermilion County for purposes of sequestering their CO2, um, pay a pittance, you know, for that sequestered CO2. Uh, and that's that's unique only to to Vigo and Vermilion County, as well as creating what effectively is is pretty broad immunity for the investors by shifting you know the burden of proof to prove harm to any animal human or tangible property the the burden of proof if you will falls on the property owner uh, to so prove that I, any any harm was caused by the project they would have to prove that not the company so and when you say condemn so uh, is property condemned because there's going to be a pipeline going under it you know, I mean, like when you say condemn me, I assume you mean you, you know, you, I mean, you take it by eminent domain, and um, and the, and I think that was part of the legislation, right? That they determined that this was in the public good, uh, this whole uh, pipeline and sequestration business, um, so that uh, so that they could then condemn property. So tell me, like, what what actually is condemn? Well, there's two there's two parts. Well, there's really three parts to a CCS project. First of all, you need a point source for CO2. So when you hear about a CO2 pipeline project, you have to sort of try to go back to the beginning of the maze and say, okay, where is the CO2 coming from? 
Then they have to build pipelines. Um, <laughs> excuse me, pipe, uh, eminent domain for carbon dioxide transmission pipelines was actually passed by the General Assembly back in 2011. That was back in the days of the proposed, you might even remember this, the proposed Lucadia Indiana Gasification Substitute Natural Gas Plant uh, that a lot of us fought for five or six years. Never happened. It was a crazy idea. But because of that, they had a CCS component. So in 2011, as part of Senate Enrolled Act 251, the General Assembly granted eminent domain for pipelines. So they have that. They have eminent domain should they choose to use it for a carbon dioxide pipeline. When I said condemn, we're talking about the last part of that, and that is the injection wells, if you will, the point at where they inject the pressurized CO2 underground. And when I say condemn, under the rules that everybody else other than Wabash Valley Resources have to play by in order to condemn property, if you will, or use private property for purposes of that storage well, um, the law would require that 70% consent of property owners is received prior to injecting that CO2 with the bill specific to Wabash Valley Resources, specific to Vigo and Vermilion County. They can inject uh, supercritical, highly pressurized CO2 underground uh, prior to notifying potentially affected landowners. And this is where it gets a little bit confusing because when you're talking about store, pipelines are easy to understand. You have a pipeline, you know what's going through it, you know where it is. We don't know a whole lot about the underground sequestration of CO2. And what we don't know is how far will that underground plume migrate over time? You continually inject pressurized CO2 underground, you know, four to 6,000 feet or so underground, about a mile. There's you know, there's 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 voids. There's lots of pore space. There's stuff in that pore space. The pressurized CO2 sort of moves through that pore space. How far over time is that CO2 going to migrate either up, down or vertically? You know, so there wait, was a so, meeting. So you're saying there's a so there's a point where it gets pumped in and there's this 11 to 12 mile pipe where to take move it. And then the pipe just ends and it's the pipe in, ends so at the injection where. site. They inject it. No, the pipe goes to the injection site. The pipes connect okay. whatever the source of the CO2 is, whether that's a power plant or a steel mill or an ethanol plant. CO2 is captured somewhere, mm -hmm. captured, pressurized somewhere, put into a pipeline, and then delivered to an injection site okay. where it's injected underground. And the fate of that plume over time is what we simply don't understand. Uh, it was suggested at one of the meetings, for example, they have what they have a basically a two square mile area, what they're calling the area of review. But if you look at research and modeling and studies and analysis of CO2, we know that that CO2 is going to move a lot farther than two miles. Matter of fact, there's studies out there that suggest it may forever move potentially up to 100 miles. And so at one of the meetings, one of the one of the local residents asked, I've read studies where it says this stuff could move 100 miles. Is that true? And Wabash Valley Resources said yes. So when I say condemned, it's a matter of using the pore space underneath your property to store that, store that supercritical CO2. And so how far will that travel over time and whose property are they using? And I don't think we have any idea yet until we have you know, some long-term data that shows the migration patterns of these plumes, which of course will differ based on the geology of each of each specific area. So I'm not talking about condemning property for the purposes of building a pipeline, I'm talking about condemning property for the purposes of storing supercritical CO2 in the spore space underneath your home, your business, your school, your farm, whatever the case may be. And when you talk about a CO2 plume that's gonna that's gonna move miles, you're talking about all of those things. You're gonna be underneath farmland. You're going to be underneath private homes and residences and subdivisions and schools and businesses and other things. So And aquifers, right? Oh, there is enormous risk and concern over contamination of underground sources of drinking water, underground aquifers, um, migrating in, creating carbonic acid, acidifying those, acidifying those wells, poisoning those wells. There's significant concern over seismic activity. 
you know, that, that, that's to me, that's one of the biggest concerns about this Wabash Valley resources project is that area sits in the Wabash Valley seismic zone. There's, there's risks (laughs) for earthquakes out in Terre Haute and the surrounding areas. And the idea that we are going to inject supercritical, highly pressurized carbon dioxide into a known seismic zone, uh, especially when we understand that we know in Oklahoma, for example, the U.S. Geological Survey has acknowledged that there has been increased seismic activity and earthquake activity because of the underground injection of waste fluids from hydrofracking. So why? Why is it a good idea, <laughs> you know, to inject this stuff into a seismic zone? And there's a smaller, one of the first CCS projects in the country was over across state borders in Illinois and Decatur, Illinois, and Archer Daniel Midlands. Uh, project where they sequestered about 700, 600,000 tons of CO2. And if you read the reports and the analysis of that project, U.S. Geological Survey identified over 4,700 what are called microquakes, you know, not quite large enough to rise to the level of an earthquake, but almost 5,000 microquakes were recorded in that area by by the sequestration of supercritical CO2. So we just think it's a little insane be injecting this highly pressurized stuff, not only into a seismic zone, but also to an area, the Wabash watershed that serves the majority of Indiana counties. There's underground sources of drinking water. Indiana American water uh, has storage wells in that area and other aquifers they use. And this is where we want to inject this supercritical CO2 and risk, um, you know, harm to human animals and property in our water seismic risk. And then there's also significant concerns about asphyxiation. Um, from CO2 that that it's heavier than oxygen. We all know this. This place is oxygen. Um, and there's abandoned mine shafts out there, abandoned mines, uh, oil wells, gas wells. Could this stuff migrate, leak through those mine shafts to the surface, cause harm? So there's there's serious concerns and worries out there. Right. So um, so the CO2s, as you said, are heavier than air. So let's say, you know, it's migrating and it, you know, finds a a crack in the stone and ends up going into an old um, uh, full mining shaft that's abandoned. And now it's just coming out into the atmosphere. Right. So, so then it comes out and it just, it just sits there. It generally forms a, you know, the, the, what we've seen, it, it forms a blanket. And if you look at, uh, you know, what happened in uh, the Cameroon, Lake Nios, where it killed thousands of head of cattle when CO2 migrated the surface in a in an old lake. There was a pipeline rupture down in Mississippi, a well, uh, well publicized. It's all over the place right now in, in uh, Yazoo County, Mississippi, Sarkeesha, Mississippi, where a Denbury CO2 pipeline ruptured. Um, and 45 people or so were sent to the hospital. The police chief said it looked like a zombie movie. People were passing out, asphyxiation, foaming at the mouth. Car engines stopped working because internal combustion engines require oxygen. Emergency vehicles couldn't get through, cars and trucks couldn't run. So there's an example right here in the United States of a pipeline rupture that caused significant uh, significant harm and concern down in Mississippi. So that's being well, well-traveled right now because of this CO2 pipeline conversation that's so occurring throughout that the Midwest right now. Because here we're talking about this 11 to 12 mile pipeline that would go to the injection site. Right. Um, and so... I mean, do people know where the pipeline's going? And I mean, are, I mean, how is that? I mean, do we and do we know how the pipeline ruptured uh, in Mississippi? Like, I haven't read the full report about the incident. The bottom line is it did rupture. Pipeline accidents have and will continue to occur. Pipeline yeah. ruptures happen. Uh, things break. Um, yes, there's a map for the proposed uh, 11 to 12 mile pipeline out there, although they've only secured to this point a little less than 15% of the easements necessary. They're getting some pushback from some landowners, <laughs> you know, yeah. whether or not they ultimately choose to exercise eminent domain, uh, I suppose will be seen. But I think it's important for your listeners to understand that this 11 to 12 mile pipeline in Vigo and Vermilion County is only the beginning. We have BP, uh, the refinery up in Whiting, who is currently in Benton County, looking to develop storage wells down there and run a pipeline from Whiting all the way down to Benton County. We now know of Tenasca working in Warren County. Who they're working with, we don't know, but there's plans for pipelines in Warren County. 
There's a one carbon partnership uh, in Randolph County that's looking to uh, get storage wells as well. There's projects in Mitchell, Indiana. There's projects down in Mount Vernon. And if you look in Illinois, Iowa, the Dakotas and other places, there are thousands of miles of proposed CO2 pipelines throughout the Midwest, including Indiana. And people need to sort of get informed and understand what's going on. And it is directly connected to the idea that we can need to continue to emit CO2. It's directly connected to fossil fuels, primarily the oil industry, but also the gas and coal industry as well. The idea that Wabash Valley Resources is going to be reducing CO2 emissions from their project is absurd on its face because they are creating a new source of CO2 solely so that they can capture it and bury that CO2. And why are they doing that? Because of the ridiculous Section 45Q tax credit in state code, that in, in federal code, that gives um, give these people $85 per ton for sequestering CO2. And if you do the math on Wabash Valley, which also matches the math uh, for BP's proposal, that is $1.7 billion in tax credits over the course of 12 years, just, just from burying that CO2. That doesn't include any of the other earnings or profits or revenues that they may realize from the project itself. That's just, so what we've done is we've monetized CO2 and CO2 sequestration. We've made it a, we've commodified it. We've made it incredibly valuable. And the Inflationary Reduction Act is much of the, a lot in the IRA we like, we like a lot. There's a lot in the IRA we don't like. And what we didn't like was this huge expansion of that Section 45Q tax credit, which was largely at the behest of big oil. Not only did it expand to $85 per ton, but it also allows the owners of those tax credits, if they want to, to monetize those by selling them to third parties, effectively like carbon credits. So there are people who stand to make a whole lot of money creating CO2 and burying that CO2 for the long term in our communities. And we're still trying to understand what exactly are the benefits to those communities who are being forced to host these pipelines and host these storage wells. We don't we don't get it. And those folks, <laughs> those folks out there in Vigo, Vermillion County don't get it either. You're asking us to assume all of the risk and all the dangers associated uh, with these pipelines and with these storage wells. You guys are walking away. The businesses are walking away with a truckload of cash and the homeowners are being compensated a pittance in comparison uh, to what these folks are walking away with. So we're we're and failing to, say, um, we're failing to understand. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say um uh landowners being compensated, you're talking about um the purchase of easements. Is that right? The purchase of easements. I'm also primarily I'm in this case, I'm talking about uh the storage wells with respect to Wabash Valley resources where uh the compensation rate is really, really low. There were people who were doing calculations for their land based on their understanding of the compensation and there are folks out there looking at a couple hundred bucks a year, you know, so, dinner, so this dinner is, out with your family. <laughs> right, right. So, but, and so when, and now that compensation is um, for being on the land uh, in the say two mile area that they're talking about where the, the carbon uh, sequestration will store. Uh, the Correct. Carbon. And that's on an so, annual basis, but, but the know, law. We don't know if it's only two miles though. We Correct. The, the law says, and this is where this is specific, again, only to Wabash Valley resources. The law says that upon the expected migration of the CO2 to your property, meaning it's already been injected. So that's what I mean when they have the right to condemn. They don't have to notify somebody that, hey, in five years, there might be some CO2 under your house. The law says upon the expected migration based on their computer modeling, modeling and monitoring. So, you know, they are saying they will monitor uh, and follow that plume over time. And when they think, when they believe it's about to encroach on your property, they'll let you know there's something in code that says this is what they have to offer you. If that homeowner doesn't like that offer, they can go to mediation. If they don't like the outcome of that mediation, they can go to court. <laughs> we all know how that stuff uh, generally works. So. That's what oh, I mean by just condemn. triggered by them telling you um, Correct. that it, it might be migrating onto your property now. Correct. So, so it, it says may... upon the expected migration, but it doesn't say like 
a week before the expected migration, a month, a year. It doesn't say when they have to tell you. <laughs> you know. Dang. So, okay, one more little technical question about the pipeline. So is the pipeline pressurized at all? Yes, yes. They have to highly pressurize that CO2 into what's called a supercritical state, uh, somewhere around 2,000, 2,100 PSI, highly pressurized. Uh, going into so this pipeline. Before it even gets to the injection site. Correct. According to the schematics that they have shown for their plant, they are going to compress it on site at the plant in West Terre Haute and put this highly pressurized supercritical CO2 into that pipeline, traveling at 2,000, 2,100 PSI or so, that whole right. 11, so, 12 miles. Yeah. So, which yeah. in my mind creates, um, you know, risk of rupture. I mean, that's- Oh, huge. Really, yes. I mean, that's, that's pretty high pressure. Right. And right. this stuff that, is and, really corrosive. Right, right. It is corrosive, really. CO2, is, oh, really? The carbon's uh, uh, corrosive on metal, steel? Yeah, they've got to use carbon steel and some lining. I've talked to some uh, folks involved in oil and gas and pipelines and some geologists, and they're like, yeah, it's pretty corrosive. Uh, you've got to have special piping. Sometimes they put additives in the, in the, in the pipeline, the additional coatings and whatnot. So there's lots of concerns from um, you know, the chemical engineers that I've spoken with, they're like, over time, this this supercritical CO2 is very corrosive and uh, could erode the, the casings and the joints and all of that stuff and the structures going down. We've got these long pipes with casing going into our aquifers with this pretty corrosive material that over time is, that's what we, that's what we don't know. We simply don't have the data to say, when is, when is this safe? When do we clear it safe? Five years, 10 years, 15, 20, 50? Or are we dealing with sort of a, you know, radioactive waste from nuclear power plants where in perpetuity this stuff is is fairly hazardous? So we just don't so, know enough yet. Okay. Uh, yeah. I so I, I so appreciate this, Al Kerwin. You're so great. You know uh, so much, and this is so important. So what happens if the um, carbon emissions that are sequestered go into these, you know, high injunction... Uh, or high, uh, high powered, whatever. So critical, when you say critical, that means um, highly pressurized, right? Yeah, super critical. You know, there was uh, somebody at the EPA hearing in Terre Haute that really explained it well. Um, you know, super critical state means it has the, the form of a liquid and a gas, uh-huh. you know, pressurized. So it has this super critical state and CO2 wants to be a gas. So you have this gas sort of fighting with you because it wants to be a gas, but you've got it so pressurized that it's this sort of super critical that has properties of liquids, have property of gas, and it's just an unstable compound, uh, if you will, based on my conversations with those in the know. So, All right, great. So, okay, so thank you. So then it gets to the uh, injection site, and then it goes down, whatever, about a mile, and then, you know, we don't know. It goes somewhere. <laughs> right. It goes through. I mean, I mean, I mean, this is not like you know terribly complicated. I think most people understand that you know geology is you know I mean it's full of all kinds of different rocks and fissures and cracks and you know limestone with all the you know pores through it. You know, I mean, all these things and and many of those things that are used uh, to filter water. So um, you know that goes through all these different things uh, as you know. Um, Rain goes through the ground, sinks down, and it gets filtered by by many of these uh, movements through cracks and pores and everything, and ends up in the aquifer. So, um, from which, of course, many people uh, draw their drinking water. So, um, particularly, I think, um, you know, in these more remote rural areas. You know, I mean, I live up by Lake Michigan. We get our water from Lake Michigan. Um, you know, but you know, South Bend get you know they have a big they have a big well um, and a big aquifer that they use. So what happens um, to the aquifer if the CO, the carbon emissions that are sequestered go under, uh, you know, go through the high injection, end up a mile underneath, and then somehow, um, you know, kind of sneak into aquifers? What happens to the water? Well, you know, again, not a chemist, but I've been told that's called carbonic acid. When you mix CO2 with with water, you get carbonic acid calcification of that water and, and other impurities. So we would have poisoned water effectively that would uh, would have to be potentially, um, you know, cleaned up. But the idea, you know, of 
all of this geological stuff is that we inject it uh, and the Wabash Valley guys say, well, it's our job to keep it at least 2,000 feet below the ground. So the idea is you inject it into a geological formation that has a cap rock on top that will allegedly sort of seal that CO2 for all time. But as you know, there are fractures, there are fissures, there are all kinds of it, in addition to the fact that we're drilling through it. So we're drilling through it with these pipings and these casing and these and these uh, these drill bits and everything. And, you know, initially they were looking at 8,000 feet or below in the Mount Simon formations. We have since found that those are not suitable. So now they're looking at a formation in between two and, you know, five, 6,000 square feet or down below or so with a, with a height of, you know, no getting it, making sure there's a cap, cap rock somewhere around 2,000 feet to keep it below that level. But here's another thing. Not only are we injecting this into a area with a known seismic zone, they have yet to they have yet to characterize the geology at these injection sites. That's that's step two. Should they get these these classics permits? They did do a stratigraphic test well and do some core sampling at a different site that showed potential in the two to six thousand foot range, what's or whatnot. But they have not actually characterized the geology where they intend to inject. And the EPA tells us that, well, that's that's the second stage here that when they're constructing those wells, that's when they do that additional characterization. And just because they get a permit to construct the wells doesn't mean they have permission yet to inject CO2. I see. So I see. They're, they're claiming well, that, is, that. And that is good to know for people who want to, you know, be involved in the process to know that you know, there's a lot of stages to the actual implementation of this plan yeah. uh, and lots of places to step in and get involved and, you know, and have some influence on the decision. Yeah, there's a long it way is go. frustrating because you feel like, well, we're already giving them a lot of money um, to get this far. And then we, you know, if we speak out and, you know, and point out some obvious problem uh, with the actual injection, uh, well, then we've just spent all that money for nothing and you know right and that's that's part of the concern here is the idea that the you know we have these class six permits from the epa it's a new permit that was created back in 2010 specific for the underground sequestration of co2 that was created in 2010 we've only issued six class six permits to date four of those permits were for projects that never happened so four of those six never even occurred the other two were for the Archer Daniel Midlands project in Decatur, Illinois. The phase one, the smaller project was completed. Now they're moving on to the larger um, phase two project. So we've only issued six of these things and two of them are only in effect ever. Now, if you go to the EPA website, there are dozens of requests uh, for these classic permits. But here's what's most troubling is the idea that we would potentially issue classic permits to, uh, to an operator who has yet to characterize that geology, and that is not a permit to inject. That's just a permit to construct. But the check, the issue for us with that is, which which they said as much at a meeting, they need those classics permits in order to get their loan guarantee, $1.2 billion loan guarantee from the Department of Energy. So from where we sit, should they get these classics permits, it really isn't even yet about injecting CO2. It's about this outfit getting a $1.2 billion taxpayer loan guarantee. Whether or not they ever inject anything ever, um, they're going to get a lot of money that's fully backed by the full faith and credit of the American They get taxpayer. going on the project, they get the loan, uh, and then um, everything, you know, turns out doesn't work. Right. There's a problem. Then uh, they default on the loan. And um and they're protected. That's cylinder cylinder two point potentially. Yep, you got that right. Yeah. It's, so it's yeah. Just, so then it, yeah. yeah. So then the taxpayers um you know end up you know covering that loan, um and those people have no um no liability. So yeah, I mean, and the idea I mean, it yeah, doesn't in order even to... encourage responsible you no. know planning or you know or even right. construction or anything. You we know because they're not absolved. even on the line. They've got no risk. The public is absor absorbing all of the risk, whether it's financial, whether it's environmental, whether it's safety, or whether it's public health, all of the risk uh, is on the backs of the public, the community, taxpayers, and these investors, these, these outfits have effectively zero risk. 
Okay, I have another technical question. Okay, so let's say, okay, so the CO2s are injected, you know, high pressurized, uh, go down a mile uh, into whatever they think they're doing, it's capped, but there's a, there's a crack in the cap or there's, you know, there's a way to get around the cap. Um, and so the CO2s, um, you know, you know, kind of drift into and sneak into um, other areas and then it ends up in um, the aquifer from which someone is, you know, drawing their drinking well. So does the CO2 get in the water and would it like actually come up into your faucet? I know. Good question. That might exceed my my chemistry abilities. I, <laughs> I don't know if this is like hydrofracking where you can, uh, you know, light your water on fire. <laughs> right, right. Where they were just pushing all that natural gas. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that yeah. I'm the right person to answer that question. Okay. So, all right. Yeah. I mean, that is, you know, of course, I, I mean, what... Yeah, and I don't even know if, if what if there was CO2s in your drinking water, like in your glass of water, and it had, you know, I don't know, isn't that what they put in like soda? Do they put CO2? Yeah, in it? correct, right. So, so it's like you know, it's like that gas, right? Correct. Like, it's my understanding, yeah. So you but, would have fizzy water, perhaps. Perhaps, <laughs> understanding yeah, perhaps. that this is CO2 that also. <clears throat> There's other, there's brine in that pore space. There's other heavy metals, perhaps. So we don't know what that supercritical CO2 is moving or pushing out of the way and what the fate of whatever right. it's pushing out, where that stuff's going. Right. You know, there's concern filling, yeah. from, there's some concern from some chemical engineers I've talked to that all of this brine could eventually find its way up and ruin all of our high quality agricultural topsoil uh, in those areas. So, you know, the, the more right. I talk to people, the more I'm like, this is really, really, really risky stuff we're talking about here. And yeah, and so unknown. I mean, so when it's being pushed down into the earth, um, you know, I don't know what they're saying that it's moving out, you know, what is it displacing? Um, air? I, you know, I mean, it's it's got to displace something, right? I mean. Yeah, well, they've acknowledged there's there's brine down there, potentially other things, but it's all, it always goes back to, the standard industry answer of, well, we'll be monitoring, we'll be modeling, we'll be watching. We've got monitors, you know, and like some of the stuff, you look at those permits, it's once a year that they report back to EPA on certain things. So they always give that sort of response. Well, we'll be monitoring, you know, okay. So, <laughs> yeah. So even if it's pushing air out of the way, I mean, the air has got to go somewhere. I mean, I mean, particularly if you're insisting that this is kind of a closed area, it's capped and it's closed. And, you know, I mean, there's something is there, if, even Correct. if it's just air. I mean, right. and where's the air going to go? I mean, yeah, it's pushing something out of the way so that yeah. it can take its place. Correct. So, oh man, there's just so many things unknown. So, and so, okay. And so we're not really sure about the whole water thing. Okay. <laughs> and on and the, can I add one thing to all of this? Absolutely, absolutely. Part of part of the legislative discussion in 2019, uh, we got that bill, at least speaking for CAC, to a place where we we dropped our objections because we got a lot of the bad stuff out. We made it this pilot project, and and we also knew that it probably wasn't quite good enough for for what they needed. But part of that sort of compromise, a big part of that compromise, was a a a study committee. Um at the state house around all of these questions that we're, we're asking right now. So uh -huh. all of these questions that you're asking, we, we sort of still have. And we had tried to resolve that by creating this study committee in Senate Enrolled Act 442. And unfortunately that study committee never happened. So the Indiana General Assembly did not have any sort of study committee or meaningful discussion with geologists, with engineers, with water folks. Everything was behind the scenes. There was no public discourse or public conversation with experts in these fields to talk about if we're going to pass public policy around this stuff, what are the concerns we should have? What's the information we need to know? Is this even a good idea? We didn't have that conversation. They so just moved forward. So the task forward. force was created, but they never met? It was not created. It oh, was created. at the Indiana General Assembly, when you want a study committee on something, you put language in a bill that says encourage the legislative council to assign the following stats topic committee, study topic to a committee. Generally, those happen when you have a specific sort of major piece of legislation where you say, we're going to talk about this stuff. 
and it just didn't happen. So the legislative council is the body that actually has to create that unless um, they do some legislative bill for a, directly for a task force. But it was expected. You know, part of that legislative conversation, and some people voted for that bill, and some people like CAC dropped our objections because it was understood we were going to have the study committee. And the study committee never happened. I see. And that's a matter of Todd Houston assigning it? That's a matter of basically yes, but it's also legislative council, <laughs> you know, leadership from, from both sides. Uh, and their you know, legislative council has a website about who's on that. But that's generally at the control of the majority, you know, both both Bray and, and Houston, as well as other Republican leadership generally calls the shots, you know, as far as what gets assigned and what doesn't. And um, it was just never assigned. And that's unfortunate because now we've got uh, seven or eight counties, if not more, where there's some sort of activity around uh, whether it's CO2 pipelines or whether it's CO2 storage wells. Uh, and the public knows very, very little about what's right. going on unless they're directly impacted like like they are in Vigo and Vermilion County where, you know, the old, most folks found out when the EPA announced that they were going to have a hearing over these class six permits that Wabash Valley filed. Most folks out there didn't know anything at all uh, about it. And unfortunately, the EPA scheduled that hearing the day before the public comment period ended. So <laughs> it was an informational hearing followed by a public hearing. And one would think, um, you know, especially with this commitment from the new administration around robust community involvement in public acceptance, that they wouldn't right. be involving the community. And the fact is they just didn't. They 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 failed this community. Right. Where's the environmental justice, you know, whole of government environmental justice um approach on this one? Missing uh, action. And we're having the same problem with these hydrogen hubs. You know, we've had conversations with DOE and some others around transparency related to these hydrogen hubs and meaningful community engagement. And that just hasn't hasn't occurred. And okay, it's really, really, really disappointing. Well, the hydrogen hub, there's huge grant funding out there for these hydrogen hubs where states or a combination of states have applied for massive, massive amounts of money to host one of several hydrogen hubs. The federal government is going to, at some point soon, announce the winners of these hydrogen hubs. And Indiana is part of what's known as the Mach 2 hydrogen hub with Michigan, Illinois, Indiana. And so Northwest Indiana, sort of the center of the universe, if you will, for... <laughs> manufacturing is a big part of this proposal to get significant funding for this hydrogen hub, which will fund hydrogen projects all throughout the state of Indiana, where those projects are, what they are, who's involved. We don't have any idea, but there's a good chance that Indiana will be awarded some significant funding for these hydrogen hubs. And there's been little to no uh, community engagement or community involvement at all. And so a hydrogen hub is a, a multi-state, it's a location of a place uh, where hydrogen is produced for the benefit of a wider region? Correct. Hydrogen is generally produced for the benefit of a wider region and end uses and potent off-takers, correct. So you have to have means of producing it. You've got to have off-takers to take it. So the concept of a hydrogen hub is we can make it here, we can deliver it here, but it's a Lots of lots of projects within that hydrogen hub, and we just don't know what they are. And so we could be receiving significant funding for these hydrogen hub projects that and we don't know that, what color hydrogen it is. Right. It could, right. Could, could be and green, we and some advocates. Yeah, CAC and some other advocates had a conversation with folks involved in that uh, hydrogen hub proposal, and they showed us this generic map of the state of Indiana, Illinois, which had these little areas carved out where there's projects, but no specifics. And so gave us, it implied to us that these projects had already been sort of predetermined. But yet, if you go back to some of the EJ stuff, the Justice 40 initiatives, that sort of thing, it was the idea there is that communities will be involved before these projects are planned. If communities don't want these projects, they won't be forced to take these projects. Yet, the exact opposite, the, the experience on the ground appears to be the exact opposite of that. And that's that's concerning, especially for the folks out in Vigo and Vermilion County. That is that is um, just shocking. I mean, given the, you know, the Justice 40 initiative by the Biden administration, they're requiring like 40 percent of all of these, you know, new um, funded 
um, projects to be, uh, you know, benefiting and um, underserved communities, and um, and the environmental justice, you know, aspect Correct. that people, like you say, will be involved in the process of what industry is coming to their community and will be protected from, you know, be, again, being the kind of sacrifice mm -hmm. zone where, uh, like we are up here in Northwest Indiana, where, uh, you know, it, the pollution is so bad already that, you know, you know, and people are so, you know, beaten down kind of by all this, you know, piling on of new industry and new emissions and, you know, and then of course the, you know, mistaken emissions and the, you know, oh, unforeseen discharges um, all over and that, you know, people here are, are, I mean, they're getting kind of numb to it at, at some point. So, yep. um, so now, um, so now this is where, you know, and then that was the whole point of the Justice 40 initiative was to, you know, to stop this momentum of just piling on in these uh, sacrifice zones. Um, and so, and allowing the community to, you know, hopefully achieve some justice uh, uh, as to maintaining a healthy environment for them and their families. So, um, so that is shocking. That it really is um, scary and shocking um, to me. Yeah, so it's really um, disappointing too. Yeah, yep. It is. So, um, so, and you you had mentioned. Um, I just want to go back for a second about the the class six um, uh, permits for these uh, high pressured deep wells, um, injection wells. So, but were you were you at the public hearing? Yes. Yes. Of course, and we so, went to the. And, uh, yeah, public so, hearing. I because I I was like what what I didn't know anything about this. So like what happened at the hearing? I mean, was there good information or I mean, well, did a the, lot of people show up? The I mean, hearing. Oh, it was packed. It oh, was packed. Well, that's good. And it was almost unanimous opposition. One of the angrier, more frustrated crowds that I had ever experienced. It was. They had a public informational hearing with Q&A for the first hour and a half. Uh, the speaker was uh, a little dry, monotone, gave a very sort of generic, I think it was somebody timed it, said it was 17 minutes. So then there was a little over an hour of questions, some of which were questions, some of which were just people screaming at them. <laughs> they took a short break and then they began the public hearing you know, just like at the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission, they they can't respond. You're just right. testifying. But they limited right off the bat. They said, well, we've got 30-some or 40-some people that have signed up, so everybody's going to have 90 seconds to testify. 90 seconds, wow. So they limited public comment to 90 seconds. But I would also say this was the first public hearing that I ever saw an end time. They said the public hearing will be 730 to 9. Uh -huh. I've never seen that before. When an agency has a public hearing, my experience has always been the public hearing starts at 6. They never say, and we are done by 8. They accept the comments, generally speaking, from members of the public. The Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission, uh, I go to lots of IURC hearings. They start their hearings at 6. They take the public comment. They even take a short break to make sure that Nobody else shows up or whatever the case may be. So not only did the EPA limit public comment to 90 seconds, they also ended the hearing at nine o'clock, despite the fact that there were uh, some folks there that, that still had some things to say. So that was in addition to the disappointment over the lack of, you know, robust community engagement. We had this very strict, um, you know, th that community got, you know, three hours with the EPA and that was it. And we're out of here. And that was the day before the public comment filing period deadline ended. CAC, uh, myself, and a few others asked for an extension publicly at that hearing. You know, we filed for a 60-day extension the next morning. Well, they granted a 10-day extension. So they extended the deadline period an additional 10 days, despite the fact that uh, some county commissioners from Vermilion and Vigo, as well as state representative, Tanya Pfaff and others requested further time. They completely ignored that, even said, nope, we're not extending the comment period. And so the community had this very, very short bifurcated uh, timeline to file comments. EPA came out to talk to them only the day before 
comments were due and they extended it 10 days after that. So they've gotten very, very little information and, and they're upset <laughs> to can, say the I least. Understand. So. I can understand. All right. Okay. Well, so we're running out of time, but I want to, um, um, you know, okay. Now you do have to explain this one other thing. <laughs> um, so, um, so part of their, part of um, Wabash Valley resources issue is they're, um, they're, they're seeking um, modified air permits. And so, right. Am I, am I, uh, let's see. And, and it's part of, it's part of the gasification process, I think. Right. So um, let's see. So they're, they're still trying to, so is it that they really just want to do more of this whole gasification and just expand the um, amount of, you know, carbon and other stuff probably um, that they want to emit in the air? Is well, I will happening? say we we have not reviewed the air permit yet. We intend to do that. This would be significant modification to the existing air permits that that facility has. They have the gasification unit. They have the oxygen plant. They have the gas turbines, they have the diesel generators. So not having yet fully reviewed that air permit, I think it encompasses all of the emissions related to the entire power block on site. You know, they intend to primarily use petroleum coke from a refinery. <laughs> you know, so the idea that we're going to be burning pet coke is somehow green uh, is absurd. <laughs> the CAC, yes. pretty dirty stuff. Yes. Um, and that air permit comment period actually closed, but nobody knew about that filing for significant modifications. So there were some local leaders in Vigo and Vermilion County that requested a public hearing on that air permit uh, out there in the community. And IDEM, good for them. They responded. They actually scheduled a public hearing uh, for those modifications to that air permit. I think it's October 2nd, October 3rd. I think we just added it to our website, but it's out okay. there. So there will be there will be a public hearing uh, on the modifications to that air permit in early October. And right. so, you know, they're, they're, this is this goes back to the point that there's a long way to go here in terms right. of, you know, their Wabash Valley resources, most optimistic scenario is completion by 2026. And you usually can add a number of years to whatever they believe their most optimistic scenario is uh, for, for finishing. So there's, you know, the community should just be aware. This is, while it feels like the fix is in, and I understand why people feel like the fix is in because the General Assembly failed this community, uh, did shove legislation through that enables this project, as did the federal government. So it feels like uh, the winds are blowing in the wrong direction, but there's a, there's a long process here. Lots of approvals and other things that Wabash Valley Resources is going to need. So folks need to stay engaged, uh, stay informed, make sure they're aware when there are things that are actionable items that they can take action on. There was the EPA hearing. Now we've got an IDEM hearing and there'll be other hearings and comment periods in the future. So, um, and we've got a really nice webpage on our website uh, about Wabash Valley resources that we're updating almost daily uh, wow. as new information just sort of continues to pour in. So that's, and that's great. And I want to emphasize that. And I think that, cause I think that's so important that there is still lots of opportunity for people to get involved and you know, find out more, ask questions um, first and, you know, and demand some answers. Um, yep. so that make this a much more transparent, um, project. So, um, and so, and I appreciate your pointing that out and you put that on your website. There's still a lot of permitting that has to be approved. Um, and so, uh, and, and as you say, you've got a great, um, page on your website about this project. And, um, and I encourage everyone to go to your website, which is what, sorry, what is it? Going? Uh, CIT. ACT.org. Sitact.org. It was created well before my time and we've stuck with it. So that's what it is. Yeah. org. That's it. Yep. Okay. So good. Sit I mean, I get that citizen action. Okay. So yep. short for citizen, short for action, dot um, org, because that's great. Um, and so people can go there and they can find out about these public hearings um, that are coming up. Is that right? Yeah. We just, we just posted that uh, up there as well. So, yep. And we'll, and we get a lot of input from the community. So the community played a role sort of in <laughs> shaping that page uh, as well. So that's that's nice when you can have a relationship with uh, with the folks on the ground. So and yeah. they're working hard out there and they they and, and hearing the 
you really get emotional because you get involved on the human side of it. You hear their stories about their family farms and their properties and their community and the, the way they all work together, take care of each other. And then, you know, here come these Wall Street investors wanting to exploit that community. It's just heartbreaking. It and is. So you got to keep your resolve up. You got to keep fighting. And folks need to also understand that every level of government touches this project and this issue from local county commissioners and county councils, the state reps and state senators, and then federal governments with your congressman, your senator, and the administration. So uh, any opportunity that folks have when they're talking to elected officials or administrative officials at any level of government, they need to raise their concerns and voice their concerns and ask questions because it's, it's, it's coming, it's coming to a community near you based on sort of everything that I'm hearing and seeing, um, getting multiple emails almost on a daily basis from folks throughout the state, hearing rumors of CO2 pipelines and storage wells. And right. So we just uh, had it up here. Um, yeah. you know, uh, NERPC, um, uh, Northern Indiana Regional Planning Commission has yep. an environmental policy uh, committee. And at that monthly meeting, which is, or I think it's always like the second second week of the month, I can't remember, but anyway, it meets monthly and a public is welcome to go. Um, but um, someone mentioned at the last one that um, uh, BP came to talk about their proposal to uh, build a pipeline to take uh, CO2s away from, um, you know, away from whiting and, and then, but no one, but they didn't say where I'm like, well, where's it going? Well, they well, didn't say. So they intend to pipe it down to Benton County. They want to oh. build a pipeline all the way from whiting through Lake County, all the way down to Benton County. They've had a couple of town hall meetings in uh, Benton County and they've got another one coming up um, mid September at the, uh, the whiting theater um, or no, at the, at Fowler at the Fowler Theater in Benton County. So okay. um, that's what they want to do. They want to capture the refinery, build, uh, I think it's a 30 to 40 mile pipeline all the way down to Benton County, run that yeah, through all of those map. communities. Yeah. So yeah, so there's Lake County. So we're right at the very top of Lake County, uh, down down through Newton County, um, which is south of Lake County, and then into Benton County. Right. So, so um, that entire area, they want to run a pipeline through. Uh, to send and then, down so, and, and then they're Benton proposing County. an injection site in Benton it, County. Various, I think, various injection sites in Benton County, and we're well aware that they have been actively knocking on doors and attempting to negotiate land leases with farmers, and uh, those folks aren't real happy as well. But they're also playing under a different set of rules than Wabash Valley is playing under, so that that, that should be understood. Wabash because Valley is not a favored. Um, industry apparently. Well, BP is certainly favored. Uh, <laughs> they pretty much. <laughs> they get what they want. Yeah. But it's it's a little bizarre how BP got this bill passed for a statewide stuff, and Wabash Valley Resources specifically exempted themselves from that and got their own bill. So it's all very confusing. It, is- it calls into question Wabash Valley Resources even more because it's like, how come BP and everybody else is okay with this? And you're the only ones that says, we don't like that. We want this. It, it, it's a cause for concern. Why did they need those exemptions and exceptions that others didn't? doesn't make so, sense to us. Yeah, that is interesting. Hmm, oh, gosh. Okay. Anyway, so we're running out of time. But I just want to thank you so much, Kerwin. Uh, always yeah, a pleasure. I always yeah. learn so much when I talk with you. And, of course, this is just such important work that you're doing and um, and I will certainly want to make sure that people know what they need to do, you know, to get involved. If you're concerned, you know, go to the website. Lots of great um, explanation on on your website, um, citact.org, um, yep. and learn more about it. Um, and look for upcoming hearings. And you know, go and ask questions. I certainly have a lot of questions left. Um, so now that's, yep, that's have, what people need to do. The more I learn, the more questions I have. So, yeah, there's a lot to understand here. It feels like that. So, and um, yeah, and you can see this thing, you know, feels like, as you say, it feels like the fix is in. And although I know there are lots of permits out there, you just, you know, the the level of momentum is just a little scary. Um, You know, it, you know, when something gets this kind of momentum, this kind of money behind it, um, you know, people come out of the woodwork, you know, because they want to make a buck. And now they've, now they think they've got something and, you know, and they can push and push and push. Um, and, you know, push these things through. Um, and so, of course, it's incumbent upon us to, to make sure that we understand what's happening and make sure that the process is transparent 
and make sure um, we understand the outcomes of all yep. of this. Yep, and we're, we're doing what we can to help those folks out and uh, keep the public informed uh, to the extent that we can. So always appreciate uh, coming on your show. Absolutely. All right. Really terrific. All right. Well, thank you again, Kerwin, so much. And then just one more time, it's CITACT.org and um, go there and, you know, find uh, find out what you need to know to move forward. Yep. Great. Thanks. All right. Thank you.